Today's podcast is a very important and valuable conversation on the overdose crisis in our Canadian context. With that in mind, we'd like to start with a content warning that we discuss potentially triggering topics like death, overdose, and trauma throughout the podcast. If you or someone you love is living with addiction, please visit heretohelp.bc.ca. There's so much stigma around people who struggle with addiction. There's so much shame and pain. And the reality is, is that addiction is not a one-size-fits-all, one definition works for everybody, one reason is why every single person becomes addicted. And yet so often, when we use words like addiction, when we call somebody an addict, when we refer to recovery time as clean time, what we're doing is we are perpetuating a stereotype and a mindset and a perspective and a lens on our community members who are very human people. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Shalane. We're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. For the last five years, Nicole Mucci has worked at Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver, BC, where she has spent countless hours walking alongside and listening to triumphant stories of men and women transforming their lives out of poverty, homelessness, and even addiction. Nicole joins us today to discuss the opioid crisis in Vancouver, BC, particularly in light of a new Women and Families Centre opening up in the downtown east side this fall. Nicole, we are so grateful to have you join us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. So Nicole, if you've listened to our podcast in the past, you know that the first question that we ask all of our guests is, could you please answer the question or, f- or finish the sentence, poverty is? Sure. Um, I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit in listening to some of your previous episodes. And... My answer right now is poverty is not the end of the road. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Would you like to expand on that a little bit? Because that's certainly a a finishing of the sentence that we haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think for so many people, when they consider what poverty means, they look at poverty as a very in-the-moment experience because it is. Poverty is so often about survival. It's about the Mm -hmm. day-to-day, moment-to-moment struggles. Um, And at Union Gospel Mission, our entire ethos, our whole goal is around moving forward with uh, our community members who might be struggling with poverty. And so for us, when we think about poverty, we recognize that it is often or can be temporary and our goal Mm. is for poverty to be a temporary experience and to move into a life full of abundance whether that's spiritual Mm. community abundance abundance in having safe secure housing abundance in having a community that supports you and lifts you up and helps you raise your children or walks alongside you while you recover from addiction so Mm. poverty is not the end of the road Hmm. I so appreciate that already because I'm hearing in there that it sounds like the opposite of poverty by your definition is abundance, but not abundance, meaning necessarily wealth or money or possessions, but I'm hearing abundance of all these important pieces, community, connection to other people and and so on. So what a beautiful, hopeful 
definition. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, Nicole, you started to talk a little bit about the ethos of Union Gospel Mission. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and what is your role there? Yes. Yeah, so Union Gospel Mission is a a faith-based organization in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. We've actually been around for 81 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we are really in the business of walking alongside men, women, and children who are in the process of trying to transform their lives, who are trying to uh, exit homelessness, who are trying to recover from addiction, and who are trying to, you know, look at poverty as not the end of the road for them, but something Mm -hmm. that they are able to overcome. And we are currently actually preparing to open a women and family center this fall, a brand new building in the downtown east side. And it is essentially the first of its kind in the downtown east side. We Mm -hmm. will provide um, so many things in in the new women and family center, in fact. So we've got just for like a really quick second, because I know we'll get into this afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is history in the making. Our building is going to have a wide range of services that we know are really desperately needed for uh, women and their families in the downtown east side, all available under one roof. So mm-hmm. a woman might be able to enter into the sanctuary recovery program in. Uh, our building, and then stay for up to five years at UGM in the building with her children as she really learns to live in long-term recovery. And in the building, there will also not only be um, affordable housing that she can transition to after she has done her recovery program, but there's going to be childcare that she can, you know, safely make sure her children are in daycare while she takes an opportunity to use the educational supports that we're going to provide at UGM so she can build a career, build a life for herself and for her children. Um, And there is additionally also emergency supports and 24-hour supports for community members as well. Right now, we know on the downtown east side that we have detox centers, we have shelter centers, we have support for women, but there's no recovery program like this in the downtown east side. Mm. And so it is going to really change generations of lives. Mm. That's really, really incredible to hear because I know that a word that gets thrown around in any kind of uh, like social services or, or poverty alleviation conversation can be redundancy, like being redundant or offering services that are already being offered by someone else. And so hearing you say that is just so encouraging that you Mm -hmm. and your team have located this specific need, this gap in services. Just amazing to hear that. Can I just jump in, Nicole? I want to just be aware too that we have listeners from all around Canada, from all around the world, actually. And I'm thinking some people may not understand the significance of downtown East Side. Could you just talk to that a little bit so people know what, what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those who maybe don't live in BC or the Lower Mainland, the downtown east side is a specific neighborhood located in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, that historically has been referred to as the poorest postal code in Canada. It Mm. is um, an area of the city where we see an extreme amount of poverty. We see a deep, deep level of addiction. We see 
deeply entrenched homelessness, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the reality is is in the downtown east side, we do also see a lot of hope and we see a lot of recovery, Mm -hmm. a lot of love Mm -hmm. and a lot of community. Um, And I don't think it's fair to talk about the downtown east side in a light that only focuses on the Mm -hmm. struggle without talking about the triumph and the beauty that we see every single day. It's my favorite part about coming Mm -hmm. into work. So um, it's a really complicated, beautiful, historically rich neighborhood Mm -hmm. that does have also a lot of deep pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that. So Nicole, as we said before, and as it's been alluded to a couple of times already in our conversation, there is an ongoing opioid crisis in BC. And I'd be curious, this is a two-part question. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how this is impacting Canada on the national level as well. But at the time of releasing this episode, tomorrow will be National Drug Overdose Awareness Day. So would you please educate us about the crisis going on in BC right now? And then, as I said, what does this also look like on a national level? Sure, yeah. So um, the opioid epidemic was labeled a crisis in British Columbia in 2016, I believe. So we are now Um. five years in. On a national scale, since 2016, the overdose crisis has actually killed 15,000 Canadians. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know that in BC alone, thousands of people have lost their lives. In fact, last year during the pandemic in 2020, it was the deadliest it had ever been. Over 1,700 people died as a result of illicit drug overdoses. Um, And that was actually a 76% increase from 2019. Mm -hmm. And so when we say the opioid epidemic or we're talking about the overdose crisis, it's important to actually define what we mean by that. And Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about this, we're talking about fentanyl, and carfentanil and illicit drug use. Um, And what is happening is that a lot of people are struggling and they are dying as a result of a toxic drug supply. They are dying as a result of, you know, feeling stigmatized and using alone. And so when they do overdose, um, Mm. they don't have somebody who's able to help administer naloxone to them or call 911. And so that's kind of, in a really small nutshell, what the overdose crisis is um but what we can do is we can actually like dive into that a little bit more and talk a little bit more about what that has looked like in 2020 specifically if you'd like and Mm -hmm. and how COVID has affected that Mm -hmm. um so prior to COVID-19 hitting in British Columbia in the world we had actually began to see a bit of a decrease in the loss of lives. And we had begun to Mm. see what we were hoping was a turn of the tide um, for drug users, for people who were struggling with addiction. Um, And unfortunately, we experienced a really devastating setback in COVID-19. At the beginning of COVID-19, a lot of the measures, the safety measures that were put in place to help keep people safe um, inadvertently put a lot of others at risk 
in mm. a different kind of crisis, mm. and that was the opioid crisis. So for our neighbors uh, in the neighborhood who are struggling with mental health, with addiction, the collision between COVID-19 and the opioid crisis really escalated into a new urgent threat. And we began to watch the deaths in the downtown east side and really across Canada uh, begin to surge due Mm. to opioid um, and illicit drug use deaths. Mm. And so from March to August 2020, which is really kind of when our isolation and those stay-at-home orders and um, social distancing was really getting figured out when we were all really in the height of the pandemic, over 900 people died in BC due to drug overdose which was a 75% increase uh, in the same time frame of the previous year. So it's huge. It was a huge Mm -hmm. loss. And Mm. unfortunately, the pandemic contributed kind of directly to those deaths or it correlated to those Mm -hmm. deaths because where staying home for many of us meant more family time, perhaps sometimes too much family time (laughs) for others that isolation was really deadly. Mm. And the limited capacity and at some points the shutdown of safe injection sites in Vancouver really meant that people who were using drugs didn't have those same safe havens that they did before. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so they were often dying alone because there was nobody present to give them that life-saving shot of naloxone if they did overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you took that and you coupled that with the shame and the stigma of using drugs, with the mm-hmm. mental health struggles that so many people faced, and then the consistent message of, you know, be safe and social distance and stick to your your bubble, um, a lot of people who struggled with addiction didn't necessarily know who to ask to be with them while they mm-hmm. self-medicated. Um, and the really devastating reality is that an unwitnessed overdose can't be reversed. Mm-hmm. Nicole, was there an issue with the quality or the toxicity of the drugs as well? Did that actually change during covid Yes, and so that was my next point, was that Mm. as COVID-19 hit, our borders all began to close. Mm. Our national borders began to close. And a lot of the illicit drugs, a lot of the opioids that are coming in that are on street level were coming from different parts of the world. And police and different health um, officials and stuff really speculated during 2020 that a lot of local street suppliers, in order to stretch what they had with fentanyl, began mixing other substances into it, making the the drugs themselves a lot deadlier. Oh, and okay. you know, like you just didn't really know what you were getting. And because of that, there was an increased opportunity for overdose. And and occasionally, like, a really bad batch might react a little bit differently to naloxone. So people were Mm. were requiring more shots of naloxone to have their overdose reversed. Mm. Um, 
And that also definitely increased the the toxicity. It increased the number of overdose and unfortunately the number of deaths. And then there was also the barriers that physical distancing yeah. created for um, people who struggled with addiction and who used drugs to access services like rep- recovery programs, services like safe consumption mm-hmm. sites, detox centers. Um, when we first declared the state of emergency in March 2020, everything shut down basically. Mm-hmm. UGM was one of the only places that didn't shut our doors at all, wow. ever during the pandemic. And after a couple of weeks, different organizations were really be able to begin reopening, but in different capacities and in different ways. Um, but unfortunately, when the scaling down happened, it didn't just create service gaps for our community, it created higher barriers to safety. Mm. And so if services were reduced by 50%, sure, that meant 50% of people could come in and use safely, but that also meant that 50% of the people that previously would were now maybe using outside or on the streets or alone. Yeah. Right. And then there was also the fact that there was often a two week, 14 day self isolation period um, for some people in order to go into detox and recovery centers. And so that made it a lot harder for people to to come in to receive that life saving care. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because that's an additional barrier. And so there is just there are so many different different issues that people were facing Mm -hmm. and tragically 2021 the first four months of the year we saw the overdose crisis continue to just destroy lives Mm -hmm. so in bc 680 more people died from january to april of this year wow which was an increase again of 64% more than the same period last year before the pandemic hit. So we've just seen this really deadly upward trend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the current modeling that has been provided shows the possibility that the situation nationally, so now if we're looking big picture again, now that we know kind of like on a really local personal scale, what what was happening. If we look big scale at 2021 and what the modeling shows could happen is that nationally by the end of the year that it could be our worst year yet for death and for Mm. loss. Um, There's just a a steadily increasing potential number of deaths predicted all the way through until the end of the year. Wow. Wow. So Nicole, if I can just jump in, we want to talk a little bit more about what things look like right now in the present moment and then also looking forward. Um, But if it's okay with you, I just wanted to make a comment and maybe ask a question that perhaps other listeners are noticing this as well, that in this conversation around just the, the whole conversation, I have not heard you use words like addict or like there's, there's, there's a different type of language that you're using there. And I'm wondering if that's an intentional choice. Yes, that is an intentional choice. Um, Thank you for noticing. 
And the reason, the intention and the heart behind that is because there's so much stigma Mm. around people who struggle with addiction. There's so much shame and pain. And the reality is, is that addiction is not a one-size-fits-all, one definition works Mm. for everybody. One reason is why every single person becomes addicted. And yet so often when we use words like addiction, when we call somebody an addict, when we refer to recovery time as clean time, Mm. what we're doing is we are perpetuating a stereotype and a mindset and a perspective and a lens on our community members who are very human people. Mm -hmm. And instead, we may inadvertently perpetuate this belief that they are dirty, that there is shameful in something shameful in their struggle, that there is a reason to be less than, that they might be less than. Um, mm. And that's not what we're about at Union Gospel Mission. That's not what I'm about as a human being. Um, and so there is a really intentional use of language yeah. mm. in our organization and for myself. We know every single person on this planet from the time they're born until the time they die experiences so many things Mm -hmm. and each experience is completely unique Mm -hmm. to that human being but we also know that societally and culturally there are certain things that cause added trauma that cause life to be more difficult and that can compound over time to make the experience of simply being on this planet more difficult. Mm -hmm. So if we look at things like residential schools, if we Mm -hmm. look at things like the 60 scoop, if we look at uh, the racism that is deeply entrenched in our society, unfortunately, we recognize that generationally, there are different things that can add to addiction um, or that can lead someone to a path of addiction. And so we, yeah, we choose to use language in a really roundabout way to try to combat that because mm-hmm. a word doesn't paint a whole story, but a word can help move people away from a preconceived idea of what the story could be. Mm-hmm. Well. To our listeners, perhaps this conversation is a different angle than um, you've previously experienced when talking about drug use and overdose. And so we invite you to engage with us. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at podcast at fhcanada.org. We love to hear from you. And I know personally, I've got already so many questions and I'm chewing on so much of, Mm -hmm. of what Nicole has graciously shared with us today. As I said before, Nicole, we want to hear a little bit more if you're willing to, to share with us about what things look like today and maybe what's the current situation at this moment. And Nicole, maybe if I can jump in and add to Eric's question too, what do things look like today for frontline workers? Mm. Because I imagine this has felt incredibly devastating for people like yourself, who are are living and working with people who are struggling so deeply, and and you're losing friends 
in in the uh, community? Yeah, so according to the overdose indicator report, which was released in May 21 by the BC CDC, so a little bit outdated by August 31st or 30th, but what we have seen is that paramedics are attending more overdoses than ever before. Mm -hmm. And they also recognize that overdose rates among women are still considered right now as unacceptably high. And so we're seeing the trends over the last several years up until this point in time dramatically increase in paramedic-assisted overdoses. And what that means is that 911 is being called. Mm -hmm. And so right now at this point in time, we are seeing 911 being called more than ever. That doesn't tell the whole story though, Mm -hmm. because we know anecdotally through our outreach workers and our frontline staff here at Union Gospel Mission that they may administer naloxone to somebody who has OD'd outside or, um, you know, somebody might run into reception and ask for help and our frontline workers run outside. And after administering that shot, sometimes people who are struggling with addiction might ask them not to call for medical Mm. help. And so this kind of goes back to to that choice of language use and the conversation around stigma, the conversation around shame, the conversation around um, systemic racism or systemic uh, stigmatization. And sometimes people who are experiencing homelessness or struggling with addiction have experienced a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, um, unfortunately, sometimes abuse in big institutions. And as a result of that, we are seeing people sometimes choose to decline medical assistance Mm -hmm. rather than face further potential judgment, stigmatization, or through fear. Um, for us at UGM, we know that we, our outreach staff has saved at least 30 lives, um, 30 people from dying due to potential opioid overdose in the last year. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've just only administered 30 shots of naloxone. Sometimes overdoses are severe enough that it requires multiple shots for a person to be revived. Um, Sometimes it requires CPR. And uh, to answer your question, yeah, we have lost people we love in the last year. And it's been really tough for our staff. Some have had to go on leave. Mm -hmm. They have compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. They're burned out. Mm-hmm. They've experienced a huge amount of vicarious trauma in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, the loss and the grief at times when talking to our outreach team is palpable. It's yeah. immense. Yeah. And so the best we can do is just keep showing up. And, you know, I'm part of a communications team, so I might not be on that front line every day. My sword is my words and Mm -hmm. the overdose team the uh outreach team they're the ones saving lives every single day Mm -hmm. and they are working so hard Mm -hmm. and that is why we focus on the hope 
Yeah. That's actually just what was coming to my mind was how do you how do you press on because that sounds very very intense and very grief filled. So, yes, talk to us about the hope. Well, we have a huge amount of hope mm-hmm. because we do get to see really really beautiful moments. We have seen Uh, men and women come through our different recovery programs and, you know, not just start to lead a life of recovery themselves, but actually walk the walk and join the UGM family and become UGM staff and, Hmm. you know, mentor one another, mentor community members. And that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also know that we just have this consistently kind of growing community of people who every single day are making the choice to change their lives and to continue changing their lives in positive ways. And so that gives Mm. us hope. Mm -hmm. And right now the biggest hope on the horizon for many of our staff at UGM is the fact that we're about to open this brand new building Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not just going to be the lives of people today that are being changed, but this is our women and families center, which means that at the core of what is about to happen is that generations of lives are about to be Mm. changed. We are hopefully about to witness these women come into these programs and end generational trauma. They're about to break cycles of abuse. They're about to break cycles of addiction. They're about to Mm. show their children just like what powerful, amazing strength that they have Mm. and use that to propel their family forward. Mm. And that's going to be an incredible thing to witness. Mm -hmm. We've gotten to witness it on a much smaller scale over the years um, with our our older building and with our programming as it stands now, because we have had women and families programming Mm -hmm. this whole time. Mm. But the fact that we have gotten to build out on that is super exciting. And it just, I'm just filled with joy to get to be able to share Mm. that and talk about it a little bit. We can just hear it in your voice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's beautiful. Mm. Nicole, how many um, people will this building House. How many people will actually be able to participate in this? So let me just paint a little picture, if Please I can. Do. <laughs> um, so we will have 135 beds and 63 units of housing for decades to come. So some of those will be like bachelor or bachelorette, I guess, style units. Some will be two bedrooms and some will be three bedrooms because something that we've Amazing. noticed is that in the downtown east side, and I mean really in Vancouver generally, there is an affordability and space crisis. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult to find a three-bedroom rental at mm-hmm. any like imaginable level of affordability, even for a middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are struggling with poverty, if you are, you know, at the beginning of a new journey in your life, if you're at the if you've walked this recovery walk and you've got your two little babies in tow, or you've you know gotten them back from care, and you want to start your life fresh mm-hmm. with them, finding a three-bedroom place for you to live might be really difficult. And so mm-hmm. we're super, super jazzed yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to really have that available. Um, 
because we know that when moms have stable housing, their kids have a chance to thrive. Mm -hmm. And if their kids have a chance to thrive, then in the future, those kids might have kids who have a chance to thrive. And hopefully mm -hmm. tens of thousands of lives are going to be touched throughout this building. Um, and we actually hope to open the doors in our building in October, which is just in time for Women's History Month, which is mm. perfect because for us, this is history in the making. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and as I kind of touched on before, we really do have a really wide range of services that are going to be available to these women and children um, that we know are needed. And it's all under one roof, so they don't have to go a bunch of different places to make mm -hmm. these um, life-changing things happen. There is new supportive housing. There's expanded emergency supports. There's new long-term programs like addiction recovery, um, mm -hmm. which means that our Women and Families Center is going to work to tackle homelessness, poverty, and addiction one life at a time, all at the same time. Mm. <laughs> and that's, it's just brilliant. It's so good. And we know that the need is there. We know mm. that, you know, kids in the downtown east side, the child poverty rate here is about 80%. 80% of the kids in this neighborhood are living under poverty. Wow. That's huge. Mm -hmm. um, we know that 61% of kid, of families who are in the housing registry uh, through BC Housing are led by single parents. And approximately 87% of those single parent households are female-led. Mm -hmm. um, we know that women who struggle with addiction often are afraid to seek treatment or ask for help because they don't want to lose their kids. Because mm -hmm. there's right. added weight trauma, stigmatization, and judgment on women who have kids that might struggle with addiction, that might struggle with mental health. There is this kind of perpetuated ideology around women to have it all together, especially if you have kids. Mm. And if you're struggling and, and you ask for help, there's a huge fear of judgment there. There's a fear mm -hmm. that you might have your children ripped from your hands and that's not going to help anyone recover from trauma or help them no. recover from addiction. In fact, the opposite is true. We know through like scientific data that if a woman is struggling with addiction and she has a baby, if she gets to keep that baby with her while she walks her recovery walk, Five years down the road, she is far more likely mm. to be continuing on a journey of recovery than a woman who has had her child removed from her care. Mm. Because mm -hmm. there's trauma involved For in having sure. your children ripped from you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so our sanctuary recovery program is going to really address that need. It's going to mm. have that space. One of our programs currently that we have had at UGM since 2014 is the Sanctuary Stabilization Program, which um, provided a stabilization support system for um, single women and women with babies to come in. And while they were looking for the next steps in their recovery journey, they were able to have the mom and the baby stay with 24-hour around-the-clock support from our uh, staff while they figured out their next steps. Um, and often this meant that the uh, Ministry of Family and Children's Services didn't take 
the baby into foster care because the mom was able Mm. to keep the baby because UGM had 24-hour staff. Mm. And we saw how incredibly helpful that was. Um, But then we also saw a backlog begin to happen because there wasn't enough space. The need increased. And so for a long time, the average stay for a mom and her baby at our program was about 94 days, so about three months. Last year, that jumped to 122 days or more. So the the length of time the women are needing to stay in order to stabilize with their babies is increasing. And so a lot of our programs now have a backlog. They're at or near capacity continuously. And so the need for this new building, it can't be overstated. Mm -hmm. You know, Nicole, there's so many things that you're saying that resonate with me when I think about the work that Food for the Hungry does, because you're doing here in Canada so many things that are so similar to what we know and experience in the international communities that we work with. And one of the things that we do is that we walk alongside communities who are struggling and dealing with extreme poverty kind of situations for 10 years. So we get that sense of you can't just do something that's a a quick fix, that this is really about building relationship. It's about building community. It's about that holistic approach mm-hmm. where the entire person is considered. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And we just share your excitement over this the launch of this new building. We do need to kind of wrap up here, although I feel like we could talk for another hour. <laughs> oh. uh, but do want to just give you a chance to speak to Listeners are enjoying this. They're appreciating their learning. What other books and resources might you recommend before we wrap our time up here together? Yeah, um, there's so many. So I think one of the first recommendations that I always make to people when they want to learn more about how trauma and brain circuitry plays into addiction um, and how to really start to step out of a lens that views addiction perhaps as a choice and more Mm. as a, you know, biological circuitry coupled with trauma or uh, Mm -hmm. mental health uh, is to read the book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by, Mm. I always mispronounce his name, but by (laughs) Dr. Gabormate. And if you want to learn more or have a real hit of empathy. If you Google the Globe and Mail article, Portraits of Loss, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you're able to link that at all, but it tells a hundred stories of a hundred lives that were lost in 2020 across Canada. Andrea Wu wrote it and gathered a lot of the information and it's Mm. really beautiful and really, really sad. Um, Mm. We contributed a story from a really beloved young mom who we lost, Mm. which was really sad. Mm. But there's stories of teenagers, there's Mm. stories of parents, grandparents. It really highlights that the overdose crisis isn't like just a street level thing, that a lot of people become addicted to opioids in many other ways through, you know, medically prescribed drugs after a surgery, 
to, mm. you know, maybe trying something at a party as a teenager. Like, there's so many different ways that addiction can begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, another, so two more other things is that if you Google the Vancouver Public Library, and if you Google Vancouver Public Library overdose awareness, they actually have a list okay. of books oh, that you can read about addiction. And I think that's always a really good place to start. And then finally, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more bite-sized and you just want to know where are we at right now with the opioid epidemic in BC, um, Mm -hmm. you can actually go to UGM's blog. We will have an updated blog talking about the opioid epidemic in BC uh, posted just in time for the release of this podcast and for overdose awareness. Hmm. Great. And yes, Nicole, we will make sure that all of those yeah. recommendations that you have go on our list, which we can, we'll definitely make sure that that's all available for our listeners. Mm-hmm. So Nicole, listeners who want to learn more about UGM or, I mean, if it's okay with you to reach out to you to, to talk more about this or just people who are so interested. I mean, this is such an engaging conversation. How can listeners find you? Where can we point them to? So the best place to go if you want to learn more about UGM just generally would be to go to UGM.ca. We also have a really um, robust online presence for social media. So if you're on Facebook, just Google UGM or not Google. If you're on Facebook, just type into the search bar Union Gospel Mission Vancouver. If you're on Instagram, same idea. Um, If you have a TikTok account, you can find us on TikTok. We are all over the place. And if you wanted to ask me a question specifically, I'm very happy for you to share my email as well. And people can reach out to me that way. Um, And if I don't have the answer, I will do my best to try to find it or put people in touch with someone who might know more than me. Because I am not an expert in many things, but I love to help people find the answers to the questions they have. Nicole. Thank you so much. Thank you for your passion, for your commitment, for all the work that Union Gospel Mission is doing. We are blessed to have had this time with you and just so grateful that you'd be willing to help us learn more and help us gain greater understanding about this really, really important and significant issue. So thank you for your time. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time to talk about this. It is really important really important and I'm so grateful to be a guest on your podcast today. To explore what your next steps could be or find out more about Union Gospel Mission and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources. 